welcome to the Brain Body Fitness Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Cerise, Johns Hopkins doctoral candidate and mind, brain, and movement specialist. In these episodes, we explore how the mind, brain, body, and environment interact, and why understanding this interaction can help you right now, today, to improve your physical, emotional, cognitive, and social well-being. Thanks for joining us. Let's jump in. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. David Eagleman. Dr. Eagleman is a neuroscientist at Stanford University and an international best-selling author. He is co-founder of two venture-backed companies, Neosensory and BrainCheck, and he also directs the Center for Science and Law, a national nonprofit institute. He is best known for his work on sensory substitution, time perception, brain plasticity, synesthesia, and neurolaw. He is the writer and presenter of the international PBS series, The Brain with David Eagleman, and the author of the companion book, The Brain, The Story of You, and the writer and presenter of The Creative Brain on Netflix. Beyond his 120-plus academic publications, he has published many popular books. His latest book, Livewired, tells the story of brain plasticity, how your forest of billions of neurons reconfigures every moment over your life. His best-selling book, Incognito, The Secret Lives of the Brain, explores the neuroscience under the hood of the conscious mind, all the aspects of neural function to which we have no awareness or access. His work of fiction, Sum, is an international bestseller published in 33 languages and turned into two operas. The Safety Net examines what the advent of the Internet means on the timescale of civilizations. The award-winning Wednesday is Indigo Blue, explores the neurological condition of synesthesia, in which the senses are blended. The Runaway Species, co-authored with music composer Anthony Brandt, explores the neuroscience and behavior behind human creativity. Dr. Eagleman is a TED speaker, a Guggenheim Fellow, and serves on several boards, including the American Brain Foundation and the Long Now Foundation. He is the Chief Scientific Advisor for the Mind Science Foundation and serves as the Academic Editor for the Journal of Science and Law. Well, thank you so much, Dr. David Eagleman, for taking the time out of your busy schedule for this quick chat. The rising incidence of diseases of the mind and brain make your work exceedingly important to those of us who are health educators and practitioners, not only to expand our knowledge base, but to shape the way we teach and even shape the language and metaphors we use in our practice. So let's dive in. A lot of us were schooled in the metaphor of the brain as a computer, with the brain being the hardware and the mind being the software. But you creatively introduce us to a new concept of the brain as liveware in your latest book. Can you tell us a little bit about this word and why you think it's a better way for us to think about how the brain operates? Yeah, thanks, Lisa. I, um, <clears throat> you know, the way that we all work on machines nowadays is we build the hardware trim and efficient and the software writing on top of that. But in fact, when we look at the brain, it's, you know, tens of billions of neurons in a very complicated forest, constantly reconfiguring every moment of your life. And so what we're looking at is neither hardware nor software, but liveware, I think, is the only term that we can use for it. But what this is about is that every moment of your life, you are reconfiguring, 
Um, just in the you know few moments we've been talking already, maybe there's something in my brain and your brain that's changing. So um, yeah, you know, as as you know, Lisa, you know, in the field, this is called plasticity. The reason I'm not big on that term is because it sort of underrepresents the amazingness of what's going on. So William James was inspired by plastic, the way that you can mold it and it holds on to a shape and it doesn't change that shape. But what's going on up here is way more dynamic than that. Um, and it's this ever-changing system that absorbs the entire world around you. That's so amazing. And I've also heard you talk about how understanding that the brain being live-wired puts to rest that old debate about nature versus nurture and that it's always both. Would, would it also be accurate to say that the brain's live wiring also puts to rest the notion of a mind-body dualism, that the mind and the body are distinct entities? And the reason I ask this is because my research uncovered that dualistic beliefs correlate with less healthy lifestyle practices. So this got me thinking, if dualism is a potential health barrier, then helping people understand the concept of the brain being live wired then becomes a health promoting endeavor and uh, makes it important for us to teach this concept. Do you, do you think that um, just as that nature versus nurture debate is dead, do you think that the, it puts to rest the mind body dualism as well? I do. Uh, I mean, I think the mind-body dualism idea is dead, not necessarily even because of live wiring, but just because of what we've seen in clinics for the last 100, 150 years, which is to say, when you get damage to the brain, uh, it, you know, it damages the mind. And so this is how we know that the physical and the mental are somehow equivalent. Now, we don't know the mapping yet exactly how to say okay well these billions of neurons here and these chemicals and these you know microtubules inside and like we don't know how to say okay that equals the you know the redness of red or the pain of pain or whatever but we do know they're related because when somebody gets damaged to a particular part of their brain they get very predictable deficits as a result in their mental life their cognition their perception their consciousness um, and so this is how we know that these, as much as we'd like to think they are, these aren't particularly um, separate. Right. Oh, thank you so much for that. You've also used the analogy of our consciousness being like the broom closet in the mansion of the brain and how so much is happening under the hood of our consciousness. And of course, we'd like to think we, we have tons of discipline and willpower and control over our behaviors. But in your book, Incognito, you say that this may be an illusion. Can you explain to our listeners what you mean by the brain being the broom closet in the mansion of the brain and why understanding this has you know, real world consequences and implications? Yeah, yeah. I mean, right. So the illusion is we go around and we think consciously, okay, I'm, I, you know, the conscious me is the one making decisions and choosing my next thing and so on. But, but of course, almost everything we do is unconscious. Your breathing, your heart rate, the digestion, like all that stuff you have no access to, but you actually don't have access to even how you make decisions in the world. And, um, and so there's a whole century of psychology experiments demonstrating the way that we make decisions, sometimes without even knowing what we're doing. Um, there are many examples that I, um, Lisa, you've probably heard me say this before, but you know, 
you know, if you if you imagine holding onto a steering wheel and imagine, you know, you're going 40 miles an hour down the center lane, and you make a lane change into your right lane. How do you turn the steering wheel to make a lane change? Try this out on 20 people. And what you'll see is that nobody gets it right. If you're just pretending to hold a steering wheel, what people do is they turn the steering wheel to the right and then back to center, which would steer your car over the sidewalk. The way that you make a lane change is, you know, to the right, back to center, all the way to the left, and then back to center again. But we don't know how we do it. And it's almost as true of our decision-making, our behavior, our beliefs. It's very difficult to put your finger on why you believe particular things. I mean, just politically, you know, you look through Twitter, you say, oh, I agree with that tweet. I don't agree with that tweet. Well, why? Why is that? It has to do with your entire history up to this moment and everything um, you know, every experience you've had in your life, as well as maybe something about your genetics, these all come together to make you who you are at this moment. And by the way, that won't be the same person you'll be in five years or 10 years anyway. But in any case, we tend to overinflate the role that our conscious mind plays in all of this. Um, and mostly how even, even, and we all know how difficult it is to to get our conscious minds to steer our behavior the way that we want to be, the, the way that's aligned with who we want to be. Because, um, you know, we end up in, we, we end up acting as our, you know, as our brain steers us to act in different situations. You'll eat the chocolate chip cookie, even though you promised that you wouldn't do it and you don't want to do it, but you end up doing it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's very applicable in the health and wellness industry as we work with people on behavior change and and uh, really extending some grace to themselves that it's all a lot harder than we think because it's very humbling to think about the fact that you know we we may not have as much willpower as we think we do and so there are a lot of other things to take into consideration and you've talked about you know the Ulysses contracts which is a probably topic for a whole other discussion, but you know, setting yourself up for success, knowing that some of these unconscious processes are at work. Um, so yeah, exactly. And the whole thing about willpower is a funny one because it is it's part of you arguing against another part of you. I mean, it's all it's all you, and uh, you know, party wants the cookie. Party says, "Don't eat the cookie because I'm trying to stay healthy." Party makes a contract with yourself and says, okay, I'll eat the cookie, but I promise I'll go to the swimming pool and swim laps tonight. And then part of you says, oh, I've got too much to do tonight. And, you know, this is all, it's all you. Uh, <laughs> and this is why it's complicated. So what we call willpower, I think, is, you know, the part of you that's thinking long-term, like, okay, this is, the, I, I don't want to eat the cookie because I think that's the best thing for me long-term, but you've got the whole rest of the brain to deal with. <laughs> And so I wanted to also ask you, because many of our middle to senior aged clients are interested in maintaining their brain health and the brain health of loved ones as they age, you have a company, BrainCheck, that has an app that assesses cognitive impairment. Could you tell us a little bit about that app and its purpose and why assessing mild cognitive decline at the earliest possible time is, is important? Yeah. Um, so neuropsychologists have been studying this sort of thing forever, where they give you some pencil and paper tests to measure your cognition and your performance. So 
let's say, you know, you memorize 10 words and then they ask you, was this word on the list? Was that word on the list? Maybe they, and then ask you that again, 10 minutes later, they have you do various other sorts of tasks, connecting the dots, timing you, stuff like that. Um, what I've done with brain check is, is simply put this um, onto a tablet or a phone or a desktop so that we can actually get this really tight with, with about six, seven minutes of games that you play. We're measuring 14 different things about what's happening under the hood. And we can tell when your cognition or decision-making or perception is changing, even in very subtle ways. And the key is that almost nobody goes to the neuropsychologist, but if you could have this app where you could you know, test yourself and see how you're doing cognitively, it really matters for the reason that you said, which is that catching dementia early when it's at the mild cognitive impairment stage matters because that's when you can do something about it. There are various pharmaceuticals that can have efficacy that by the time someone is fully demented, it's too late. So if you catch things early, it's really useful. The, the difficulty with doing this in real life is just that, you know, we all have denial um, mechanisms about things like, well, it's been a been a tough week. I haven't gotten much sleep. You know, yeah, I've forgotten someone's name. Yeah, I forgot how to do this thing, but you know, that's just a passing, whatever. So there's a million ways to deny when things are starting to move in, in one's cognitive ability. So this is just a way of quantifying it through time and actually having a record. And what's always been very weird to me is that, you know, we go to the doctor, you get your blood pressure checked, you get your eyes checked, whatever, but no one checks the brain, which is the most important bit of it. So, so that's what we're doing with brain check. That is so interesting. So is this something that a person would use with their physician? Can a person use this on their own or how exactly does that work? They can use it on their own. Uh, anyone can use it and you can just you know track yourself through time. You know, just take it once every three months or whatever. Um, and our main, the main business practice is um, it's in hospital systems and physician practices. So that's the... So what that means is the physicians involved give it to every single person. You know, let's say you're doing a yearly visit. So every year when you come in, you just take a brain check for six minutes and then the data, they've got that data on them. Okay, I see. Well, thank you for that information. I know my listeners are very interested in that. Well, we are at our final question. And you have mentioned in your books that challenge and novelty are important to maintaining brain health. Can you tell us why and leave our listeners today with maybe a few fun little hacks or tips or tricks that they could quite literally do today or every day to integrate uh, novelty and challenge into their daily routines? Yeah, the main thing is that, you know, your brain's job is to build an internal model of the world out there. And typically what happens for all of us is the older you get, the more you feel like, okay, I've got it. I know how the world operates. And then your brain is doing less and less changing. And the reason this matters is because brains naturally, like any tissue in the body, you know, gets older with time and things start falling apart a bit. And if you can force yourself to build new roadways and bridges all the time, then you're keeping that organ healthy. So for people who aren't challenging themselves, you know, things just degrade with time. Like if you can imagine a network of roadways that never gets maintained. But the idea with challenging yourself is that 
you're taking the the limits of your internal model and you're saying, well, wait, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't work. Wait, I need a new solution to this. And by doing that, you're actually building new roadways all the time in the brain. Now, the problem, as we all know, is that a lot of people, when they retire, their lives shrink. And the key is actually at any age to make sure that you're constantly facing novel challenges. And obviously things like the pandemic have been really tough on everybody. Um, but the most novel part of that was sort of March and April of 2020 when we were all getting used to it and figuring out the new world. But then after that, it became super boring and, and less challenging. And so um, I think you know, there are a million little things that all of us can do every day just to make certain that you're keeping your brain active. So one thing, um, one thing I do uh, quite often uh, to my wife's distress a little bit, but I'll just change up the furniture and I'll switch a painting and I'll put it over there and I'll just switch things around just to keep things different. Or I'll park on the other side of the driveway. Uh, and, and, you know, it drives my wife crazy because it's tough when one person's changing stuff and the other isn't. But anyway, the, um, but, you know, one thing I try to do every night is always like brush my teeth with my left hand instead of my right hand, which is the natural way to do it. Or if I get used to wearing a watch or something on one hand, I switch it over to the other hand. Um, the value of just facing new stuff all the time. I mean, these are silly little examples, but it adds up and it actually matters because if you are doing the same thing, you become automatized. We all know this feeling with, for example, driving, if there's a place that you drive back and forth between like your home and your work, the first time you do it, it seems to take a long time. After a while, it just becomes totally, it takes zero time because you're doing the whole thing unconsciously. So driving a different route every time, you know, maybe it takes you 45 extra seconds, doesn't matter. It's fun to take a different route. You see things and you notice different things each time. Even you can just ask yourself questions like, oh, what kind of trees are planted around here? How tall does that tree go? You know, there's just a million things that you can watch for as you're going, oh, am I in an airline path here? Where are the planes going around here? anything can be done to make the brain pay attention to the world. And, and in that way you become like a traveler when you're, you know, when you're traveling in a foreign land, you're paying attention to everything because you have to, because you have to figure out, okay, where's the youth hostel? Where's the restaurant? What street am I on? I don't even speak this language. Um, but in our daily lives, especially during lockdown, you know, you're just running on automatic. And so, this is the importance of figuring out how to constantly keep yourself challenged. And, and by the way, last thing I'll say on this is people sometimes ask me to say, well, you know, do crossword puzzles count? Can I, well, heck yeah, crossword puzzles count, but, it's, but only until you get good at it. And then you got to stop doing that and do something you're not good at, like Sudoku. And then as soon as you get good at Sudoku, you throw that out and do something you're not good at. That's the key. That's a good point. During my case study, I had my participants, my 14 exercise participants, um, I played a little game with them and I challenged them to park in a different spot in the parking lot at the YMCA, which sounds really weird, but people do lock down this habit of parking in the same spot every day. And oh my gosh, the laughter it generated as they did that each day. And sometimes walking out, they're going to, you know, in a different direction. And it really helped to hone the point that we, we automatize these things once we do them so many times. And, and, and so when 
it, it just shakes up the apple cart a little bit. And I, it also introduced a lot of levity and laughter, which is always a good thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've wondered about this with physical exercise. I'm curious what your opinion is on this, which is, you know, if you go to the gym and you do the same routine every time, is it less useful than surprising your muscles with something new? Yes. And actually that is, um, physiologically, we're taught that, that, that our muscles adapt. And so, which is not a problem if that's where you want things to be. But of course, if you are trying to, it depends if you're trying to maintain or what the goals are, like if, if hypertrophy or something like that is part of the game, then you've got to shake things up. But what I've, what I've been really interested in too, in the design of classes is also the fact that when students start to automatize, like in a group exercise class, the choreography of something. And once they've got that locked down, it, it, it's not as brain challenging. So another thing that I've done in my teaching framework is worked on methodology where you add these little surprises and of course encourage the participants to giggle with this, that, that the whole, that the success is in kind of that productive wrestling, you know, with it as you are working on it and, and thinking, and they, they will tell me that it brings more mindfulness too when you add a few little novel surprises or something that they were not expecting. So um, I, think it's, I think it's really fun. Um, the preliminary results of my case study or fantastic. I felt so Brene Brown as the, you know, the stories were just coming off of the pages because it's a qualitative study. And it's just been very interesting to see their, uh, their reaction to having neuroscience blended in, not just as part of the knowledge, but using some of the tenets of affective, you know, and behavioral neuroscience to actually create the instruction. And it's been, Fun is the word that that's been tossed around. So, so far, so good. But I'll have to let you know uh, how the results come out. Yeah, terrific. Well, this has been a delightful conversation and your work really matters to us out here in the health education world. And on behalf of my listeners, I thank you for sharing your time, your hopefulness and your enthusiasm with us today. Thanks so much, Great. Dr. Eagleman. Thank you, Lisa. Great to see you. Thank you for tuning in to the inaugural Brain Body Fitness Podcast with neuroscientist David Eagleman. You can find all the links to David's social media, speaking events, books, documentaries, research, and more at eagleman.com. You can find me on Twitter at Brain Body World. Today's challenge is to play around with your neuroplasticity and try some of Dr. Eagleman's tips. If you always wear your watch on one wrist, put it on the other. Drive home from work a different way. Rearrange your desk. Strengthen some new neural connections. Be playful with this. Give yourself permission to laugh if it feels goofy. Get your kids or your friends involved. Connect with me on Twitter and let me know how it goes. Until next time, be well, my friends. <laughs>